Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. I'm Zoe Cunningham. Hello and welcome to Software Tech Talks. Today I am delighted to welcome Helen and Yemi. Helen Yemi, could I ask you to introduce yourselves, tell us what you do at Software and maybe also an interesting fact about yourself? Yes, my name is Helen Jeffers and I'm one of the business development managers at Software. So my role is trying to do what I can to bring clients on board, but also do as much as I can as well as to retain existing customers, educate them on the value that we have to offer and give them something a little bit different. Interesting fact about myself, I'd say... During the 2012 Olympics, I did flash mob singing around Webley Arena with the choir I was in at the time. So we were going around various parts of the arena, singing a few songs, going to McDonald's, the track, all sorts of places to, to perform and try and create more energy amongst the crowd. Oh, so that was cool. That is so cool. <laughs> Must have been loads of fun. It was a lot of fun. Fond memories. My name is Yemi. I am head of sales at Softwire. I'm looking after the sales team. And interesting facts about myself, I don't know if this is that interesting really to anyone other than me, but I'm going to say it anyway, is that in approximately 17 days time, as of today, obviously I don't know when this podcast is actually going out into the wider world, I'm going to be a dad. Woohoo! So maybe already as people are listening, the people in the future, you are a dad, Yemi. How do you feel? That's, oh God. (laughs) I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for this at all. (laughs) So in today's episode, we're going to talk about the recent outpouring of support for the Black Lives Matter movement that followed the tragic killing of George Floyd in Minnesota. We'll start by recapping on the wider hashtag BLM movement and discuss how businesses can ensure that their support for this vital movement extends further than just putting a blackout image of support on Twitter. Anti-black racism is often seen as a US-only issue, and that can get in the way of making lasting change against the ongoing systemic racism that black people experience here in the UK as well. So in the UK, black people are more than twice as likely to die in police custody. An independent review of deaths in police custody found that between 1990 and 2009, 16% of those who died after the use of force were black, more than twice the proportion arrested. Stop and search tactics disproportionately target young black men, a fact that has been commonly known for a long time and has even been acknowledged by the Home Office. And even the future of policing is something that we need to worry about where we're already seeing racist tendencies with facial recognition software recently rolled out across London in January 2020, widely regarded as profiling based on race. So obviously lots to do there, but let's start with an easy question. So what is the Black Lives Matter movement? My understanding of it is it started off in the US in 2014 and it was a way to really address the systemic racism, the violence that was taking place against the black community and addressing the issues politically and basically trying to raise awareness as to what was going on on a national scale. It's now become decentralised. It is now a global movement, which means more countries are getting involved, more people are being affected by it, and just generating a, a more open dialogue worldwide, really. Well, I think what I like about it is that it's something that, you know, has started off 
in response to, like Helen says, the sort of police brutality and kind of racially motivated violence in, in, in the US. But it's, it's, it's come to mean a lot much more than that in terms of there being a much more sort of global network of individuals involved in it. But also the, the, the movement itself, I, I feel like there are more human elements to it that have, um, that have evolved over time. You know, and, and so whilst on the one hand, it is, it is still sort of fighting the cause for the black cause and sort of, you know, black freedom and kind of, you know, anti kind of, you know, violence against black people. It's also grown to become this thing about kind of respect and empathy, empathy at a very human level um, and also celebration you know, of, of, of the fact that there is so much that the black community has had and still has to offer to society. And I think those are kind of elements that are often forgotten about when you have sort of people that don't seem to quite understand why everyone's sort of protesting and, and such. Mm. And obviously, so the important point there is actually the Black Lives Matter movement has been around for a while. I think a lot of people will have their first contact with it will have been in May this year with the death of George Floyd. How did it escalate from that initial death of of George Floyd, obviously with some horrific images of policemen kneeling on his mm. neck? I think for me, I mean, the, the, I'm not sure whether this answers your, your question, but I, I think the significance the significance of that, and I've, I've heard this kind of quote touted for quite a while now. I have a feeling Will Smith was the original person to say this. But, you know, I, I think the, the interesting thing about the, the George Floyd thing is that it was so, so apparent, right? It was so sort of blatantly obvious from watching the video. There's no real kind of, you know, way of, of kind of shying away from it. It was a man being killed kind of, you know, whilst being recorded on, on camera, whilst professing to the camera that, you know, he was being killed and kind of needed some help. Which might I add, you know, is not the kind of behaviour that one expects from the police force when you factor in the police force are first and foremost a, for, a first response unit, right? A first response unit to, to care for, for citizens. But I, I think the most interesting thing about, about it, 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 like I said, it was that it was, it was done so blatantly out in the open, but also like Will Smith said, is that this stuff has been going on for ages. It's just that now we're getting to this this part in kind of popular culture where people are just filming things. People are recording things all the time. And Will Smith said, you know, it's, it's not a case of racism all of a sudden getting worse and worse and worse. It's just a case of people now being in a position where they can or or choose to record it. And so it's it's becoming a bit more front of mind, you know, with, with the way, and I guess that's one of the blessings of kind of social media and kind of media cultures today is that those things can spread and encourage and foster change a lot quicker than they would do in the past when this would just be the kind of, you know, the rumblings of a couple of months later, you'd hear about this thing that happened in the small town in the middle of nowhere. And, and, and that's when you'd sort of be given the chance to react. So, And I think to add to that, there's the culture of, say, bystander behaviour is changing where people are now filming these things and then instantly uploading it onto social media and trying to take action within their own hands. This is something the video has been shared millions of times globally, creating such uproar and anger and disdain amongst the police who are so-called to protect and to serve, of doing the complete opposite and creating so much rage amongst not just black people, but white people. And the message Black Lives Matter is not to say it's only black people. This is the priority now. This is a group of people, myself included, that need the attention right now. It's safe a house is burning on a street. The fire engines are going to go to the house burning. They're not going to think, well, what about all the other homes? Right now, this house is on fire. And this is where the attention needs to be given to at this, at this moment in time. And hopefully this will continue for many, many more years to come. This isn't 
you know, like you said earlier, so I don't want to just be some social media trend, some hashtag. It's it's something that's affecting people's lives for, you know, across the world and has been for centuries. And there has to be some change now. Yeah, because to, to stick with the same analogy, like posting a black picture on Instagram is not going to put out a fire. It's, no. it's not enough. Exactly. So why is this relevant for companies or in a kind of business work management context? For me, I think it's it's important for companies because I, I think just as the rest of the world is is kind of waking up to the fact that this is something that's been going on for ages and they, they can't really ignore well, not just that they can't ignore, but I think part of the movement, especially the kind of the latest phase of the movement, right, in in, in kind of the, the wake of George Floyd, as opposed to a couple of years ago, is that people are realising that it, you get this, this phraseology that's bounded around of it's not enough to, to not be racist, one has to be anti-racist. So there's this concept of proactivity around how you approach the movement. And I think that sort of, you know, if that's happening in the wider world and in sort of the social world, I think that there is there is an onus for companies to also accept that, yes, that, that, that needs to happen at the corporate level. And I think part of the reason it has to happen there is because, so I, I read a really interesting thing the other day, actually, that, that kind of, you know, when you read something and you, you kind of, it just explains exactly what you wanted to explain in the, you know, but just with the eloquence that you could never come up with. But what it said was that racism is not a personal trait. I know we've spoken about this, Helen, before as well. You know, racism isn't this kind of this extremist phenomenon that a lot of people reduce it to, which is, you know, racism is hate crimes. Racism is, you know, people calling you the N-word or, or, or whatever. Racism is not a personal trait. Racism is a structure. And I think with it being a structure, the corporate world plays into some of the impact that that, ha- that has or can have on the black community. So, you know, when I talk about structures, I talk about law enforcement, I'm talking about healthcare, I'm talking about education, but I'm also talking about the world of business and kind of giving black communities the same opportunities and the same privileges that their white counterparts are are, are given. So I think every structure within society, every institution has the onus on it to be on the right side of history and to kind of take part in the conversation correctly, rather than, you know, going back to the, it's not enough to just not be racist, rather than just kind of being a bystander in the process and just kind of accepting that other people are doing all the work. So is this just another way of saying it's about corporate diversity? It's all about the same corporate diversity policies that people have been putting in place? No, because I think that uh, black people's needs need to be addressed in in sort of isolation as its own entity, because with some of the statistics that you mentioned earlier, so black people are less likely to get promoted, less likely to be earning the same amount of money as their white counterparts. And when you think about it, anyway, even the place of work, you're spending more time in the place of work than you are anywhere else. It should be a place where you feel comfortable, where you feel your needs are being addressed, where you feel like you can be you can progress, you're being challenged, and part of a, of a wider structure as well that is helping further advance you as well as your peers as well. So it's, it's essentially, it's very important to for companies to take this seriously and not blank it all as for the DNI conversation because it's been evident across not just the past few months but a long time that more needs to be done for people of colour, for the black community. And I think also to follow on from that, I totally agree with Helen. I think to follow on that, you know, the problem with lumping it in, in diversity is that it gives people the ability to hide under a much larger umbrella of things that are somewhat easier to solve because those things aren't as um, impacted by some of the structures that I'm talking about earlier. So, you know, for example, you quite often have organisations saying, well, you know, as far as a sort of a BAME diversity programme, we're making lots of progress. When in actual fact, if you were to break down each of those individual bits, exactly. you'll find that, that some of them are much easier to sort of 
to tackle and to solve very easily in comparison to others. So I think, you know, BLM and sort of diversity and inclusion, I think, are, are, are somewhat separate entities themselves. But I, I think also, you know, the conversely, what I would say is that, is that the same somewhat the same kind of um, theory or principles apply in that there's just a huge amount of, of, of kind of untapped potential that can be gained by companies by addressing that. And, and perhaps, you know, in terms of, so to put my sales hat on and kind of, you know, talk the language of the person you're trying to sell to, you know, when talking to corporates, it's, 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 it's about kind of what can they gain from, from having a vested interest in that. And, and that's gaining a benefit to their sort of productivity, to their creativity, to their overall kind of, you know, commercial outlook by tapping into this talent that just isn't really nurtured and molded in the same way as others. That's so important because everyone would like to work for an organization that has clear values and sticks with its values and takes action based on those values. However, as an individual, you can't necessarily influence that directly. And I think there are a lot of people, you know, a lot of white people who are now saying, hold on, I'm not going to wait for other people to do this. I want to be anti-racist. I want to be Mm. doing the work. So what are the kind of things that those people should be doing? I think what people should be doing, what, what I've said in the past is number one is educating yourself. I think there's a huge amount of kind of education that just provides useful sort of context to what's going on, what's going on being the structures that are in in place in in society. And I think that without that context, you're kind of just, you're kind of running around like a bit of a bull in the china shop without really having an an idea of what needs to happen. And I think furthering on from that education, I, I... I do, I do somewhat think, and this is where it gets a bit above my own head, but I do somewhat think that two of the key things that people overlook, because everyone looks at it in terms of a, okay, right, my mission here is to, once I've educated myself, is to make people around me less racist, basically convert the entire world. And, and, and like, this is somewhat controversial, but I do think that essentially you're not going to change everyone's mind, right? And, and, and actually, whilst there is that kind of um, change that needs to happen at the individual level, I think like focus on the individual, right? Focus on the way that you interact with the world, focus on how those interactions, you know, question, do they increase the burden of the black community or, or do they or do they increase it? You know, and, and all those sorts of things, what can you do to lighten the load? However, I think when you when you look at the real kind of longer lasting change, what you're really talking about is at a um, economic level and at a policy level. And those are, for me, those are the two fundamental things that actually turn this movement into something that, that's a bit more kind of long lasting because racism doesn't necessarily, well, like I said, it's a, it's a structure, not a personal trait. So it doesn't begin at the individual being racist. It begins at the structures being put in place that afford certain people privileges that then mean that over centuries and centuries, those people subconsciously look to reinforce and to kind of protect those privileges that then has the negative impact on, on, on the black community. So the policy level is one thing. The second thing, which is a byproduct of the policy is the economic level you know, which is the fact that like these are, uh, you know, the black community has had years of oppression thrust upon them that mean from an economic perspective, poor communities, less prospects of affordable housing and kind of education and all the other things that kind of like give you the kind of social mobility and leg up in society. So in terms of helping the economic level, because that's perhaps somewhat easier than the policy level, you know, thinking about how ways that you can support financially the black community, going and, and eating at black restaurants, going and and purchasing from black authors or, or from, you know, black owned businesses and whatnot, and just giving that community the leg up that it needs to be able to sort of to support itself financially Mm. and obviously by purchasing from black authors you can do both at once you can (laughs) yourself and also uh, financially support the black community yeah totally and just to add to what Yemi said I think 
looking at the political structure, it's a case of really acknowledging the past, what has been taking place for us to why we're even at this stage. For instance, you know, reparations are still being paid out to, to former slave owners and their families until 2015. A lot of people do not want to acknowledge that, but really trying to understand, delving deeper as to why we're at this stage, why there are clearly still a lot of white families there benefiting from this privilege and consequently further oppressing the black community. And with, with this, it's all going to be really painful, right? These conversations and the education that you're going to be the resources that you're going to be reading are going to be, it's going to be uncomfortable, but be prepared for that awkwardness and that pain, because it's the only way you're going to grow and learn more about your friends, the people around you, your peers, your colleagues, whomever it may be, your neighbours as well. So looking at it on a micro level and as well as a macro level. So paying attention to what is going on in your doorstep, not just seeing what's going on in the US, but looking at, okay, what's going on in my my own city, my own town? What about even the councillors that have been represented in my own town and city? What sort of background are they from? What do they represent? What do they stand for? Various charities out there, businesses that you can support and reach out to. I think this sort of work and activity is really going to help you get a, a more rich, comprehensive view as to why uh, such unrest is, is happening right now. And we're all citizens of the world, really. We're all here. We all want to make, do what we can to try and add value to the world, add value to, to our immediate circle as well. I'm just going to add one thing to, to what Helen said, which I hope is going to be an example of me doing the thing that I'm just about to say. But, but um, and, and another thing is because, you, you know, you, you hear lots of, you know, I've, I've heard the word allyship more in the last kind of like two or three months than I, I have ever in my entire life, but um, which, which is, is great fundamentally. And I think in terms of that allyship, there's a difference between optical allyship, allyship, which, which we spoke about earlier, right? The kind of the performative, you know, whatnot, true white allyship. And then the other end of the spectrum, which is the, the, the sort of the, the white savior, right? Where, where someone is kind of trying to do a lot of this stuff I guess, for their own sort of intrinsic, you know, personal gain, you know, rather than anything truly altruistic. And so shining black voices and when, and black opinions and, and, and whatnot, wherever you can within your sort of daily life. And that might be in the workplace, that might be sort of with friends, it might be on social media or whatever it is, but like sort of taking black voices and kind of trying to amplify and expand upon what they've said and, and kind of get that heard, because that's, that's kind of, that's the power that someone who is not black has, right? Is 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 in being heard much more than their their black counterparts. So, yeah, more amplifying of of, of black voices and yeah, more of that. That's just a brilliant point that I've only kind of come across very recently, and it's kind of made me stop and think because it's so easy to, you know, as someone who does have a platform, I get asked my opinion on things, and I'm used to sharing my opinion on things, mm. but actually, it's not my place to speak for black people. And it's not about my views or my opinion and actually getting into that mindset of how do I, like you say, amplify someone else's voice rather mm. than trying to do things. The word saviour kind of always implies to me like this this idea of people thinking black people can't do it for themselves. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's and th there's a really wicked thing that President Obama used to do in his cabinet, which I thought was great. And it's, it's this thing called shine theory, where there were only sort of there were a few, few black members in his cabinet. And whenever they were to say something in meetings, there was this sort of implicit thing of, of kind of try and repeat and amplify and make sure that that, that thing becomes, you know, the centre of kind of what's what's discussed, because often those voices are the ones that, you know, that are kind of, you know, drowned, drowned out, um, which I think is a great thing to, to, to try and do. 
Amazing. All right. Just finally then. So if people are listening and they're in the HR team or they're in a position of leadership within a company, what should companies be doing? I think companies should be creating safe spaces for such uh, conversations, whether it be maybe a Slack channel or in-person meetings where you can have such discussions, I think would be a great step forward and really listen first. The majority of companies are led by white people, but them empowering their black employees, or even if they don't have any black employees, maybe putting the onus on, say, with the HR team to create a safe space really for people to to raise such discussions share any insights or articles or anything that they've anything that they've read or heard about within their community and i think more training needs to be done not necessarily diversity and inclusion because we've already discussed how that can be can overcrowd what's really going on right now but maybe looking at say anti-racism and ways around that in terms of what's really going on in, in the in the workplace, for instance, and ways in which to address the particular issues. And also understanding that racism isn't necessarily going to be loud and shouting of the N-word and horrific abuse in the workplace. It's going to be these quiet moments where someone maybe have been, has, over been, has been overlooked for a promotion or has been getting paid less. There's a case in the US right now, Bon Appetit, which is owned by Condé Nast, huge cooking channel. And a lot of their chefs, well, in fact, all of their chefs, ones of colour, were never paid for any um, videos they were on for, like, cooking various recipes, but all of their white counterparts were. So it's having these painful conversations to address the inequality going on in the workplace. Pay attention to the quiet moments and just remembering that complacency means you're complicit within all of this mess going on right now. Speak up. Have those painful conversations with your with your colleagues. Be frank with them. Hold your hands up and make you know you don't know everything. You don't know exactly what's going on. You can't speak on their behalf, but you what you can do is listen. And I think that would be a good step forward. I also think just fundamentally, I think that there is more good that can be done from a company just putting spotlight on the issue rather than trying to shy away from it. I think, um, you know, I read something about KPMG, for example, that kind of, you know, did that shift from from trying to tackle gender diversity to, to then trying to tackle ethnic diversity. And it was dramatic, the amount of the, the, the increase in progress that was made at the point at which they said, this is something that we are bringing to the forefront of, of, our, of our minds, of our you know, mission critical kind of, you know, objectives. And, and then all of a sudden stuff gets done about it. But I think the, the more you sort of, you know, leave it to, to the background or kind of hidden until you've made some sort of progress, I think just the, the longer it, it's, it's likely to take. So I think, you know, spot, spotlighting on the issue is number one. I think the other thing is just about, so like what Helen said, right? Helen, you were talking about sort of um, creating committees within, within the organisation. I think also just making sure that, you know, that the people that you mandate within the organisation to solve this are people that have some actual sort of influence and power, you know, in leadership to change that. Because quite often these things can, can be shunted off to smaller kind of you know non-influential committees and then it just kind of gets you know circled around in in, in sort of discussions and whatnot nothing really ever happens and what you need you know what the most successful work comes from when you've got people at the very top of the organization who are making decisions about it and kind of really driving driving that force and and, and actually just it's the people from the top having a real sense of a real belief themselves that solving this is is kind of mission critical to them 
being in existence and, and operating as a business, right? So like some of what I was talking earlier about the economic gains or, or whatever, but I think you really have to sort of, you have to say to your business, it's, it's, this isn't just like a nice to have that we're doing because it's kind of the flavor of the month movement of what, what's going on. It's because we truly understand from the top down in the organization that actually this is something that we need, that we're missing, that in, in order to sort of operate as a business in 2020, this is the kind of thing that is going to help advance us both from a, a, a social and a corporate and, and whatever other levels you, you, you want to talk about. That's incredible. Thank you so much, both of you. It's such an important topic. And as we touched on earlier, this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. This is, yes. this is not a, sure. you know, write a blog post and you're done topic. So thanks so much for coming on and sharing Thank your you. insights. And I'd like to ask you to come back again in six months, maybe, so that we can keep talking about it and keep tabs on yeah yeah i'll be a dad by then yeah (laughs) (laughs) we'll have a six month old thank you everyone for listening if you're involved with a charity in the tech space that works with black or bame communities and you think software could help then please do get in touch with us you can contact us on twitter at software uk or i am at zoe f cunningham